0: We're so glad that you joined us today for this podcast from Bishop Quentin Moore and the Father's House in Hutchinson, Kansas. God loves you and wants the best for you, and we want to hear what God is doing in your life. Share your story with us by sending an email to mystory@fathershouse.net. If you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so at fathershouse.net slash give. Just select the option that works for you. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's message
1: the last couple of weeks, Dad's been talking to us about this pure gospel. He started a couple of weeks before Easter. How many of you were here when he taught on the prodigal son and the elder brother? Did you feel your toes stepped on at any point during those services? Because I was hanging mine back as far behind the chair as I could get them. If you haven't heard those services, I want you to jump online and listen to them. Um, But he has done a, a brilliant job over the last couple of weeks of just trying to remind us of the true, pure gospel that's revealed from Jesus Christ, that's not revealed from our mamas, our papas, our denominations, our thought processes, our experiences, but it's just revealed through the true reality of who Christ is, not was, but is, amen, that it hasn't passed away. And so hes he used storytelling, and he did it through painting, if you were here on a Wednesday night, and then we had 90-plus people dress up in um, dishcloths. To try and portray the the reality that Christ not only um, has come to give us this pure gospel but he came to the ordinary. see we memorialize the people that are in this this Bible, but the reality of it is they were tax collectors and fishermen and prostitutes and sheep herders they were not that big of a deal where they lived look at your neighbor and say well then i've got a chance because the reality of it is is we celebrate peter but peter was not that big of a deal he was kind of they he was the person most would have walked past and not even given a chance but christ looked at peter and said on you i will build this house the woman that walked into the, room, the upper room and anointed Jesus' feet, the disciples were ready to kick her out. Isn't it interesting that people that weren't included in the in crowd now were included in the in crowd. And when someone from the outside of the crowd came in, they felt like they were part of something and she should go. I know we've come a long way Christians and we don't treat people that way today, but I dare to say that maybe that still plagues us in some way where we think we've got something someone else doesn't have and we might be, okay, we'll just move on because we're just, that's not where we're focused on. So this, this idea that we have understood and Dad then took us to the chairs and explained how we get this perception in our minds that God is good and I am bad and somehow I have to attain something or behave a certain way for God to love me and really the only way God can love me is because he sent his only begotten son to get up on a cross and that Jesus took my punishment and my shame and my guilt and he took that upon himself because this mean angry God needed to punish somebody and that I have access to all the good things of God but dadgummit I better not sin again I better get my life together, or he's not going to love me, and then I'm going to wait for this judgment that exists out here someday where I might be judged too. That is the gospel that the church has been telling people. And the truth of the matter is, is that's not the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is that his judgment happened on the cross, and it was mercy and it was love, and it was grace. That I'm not waiting for God to judge me in this far off moment, but that God stretched out his arms and assumed all that I should have assumed, and he became the substitute for my sin, right? And he said, you are forgiven, you are loved you don't have to do anything to earn this. You don't do anything to deserve this. We, we were here for a Good Friday, and um, I, I just gotta tell you, if you missed that service, you missed a service. It was. I think those of us that partaked in the service were not aware of how um, impactful that service was gonna be. And I remember being so moved Um, at the reality that when we took the seven last things Christ said on the cross and we each had to do a short reflection on it, and I had the line, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And I was overwhelmed by the reality that what God was doing was undoing everything I had ever done. That in one moment... He undid everything I've done, everything I've left undone, everything I was going to do. And that it's not based on what I do, but it's based on what he did. And I get to live in the celebration of this, this amazing grace. But my fear, church, is that we that word right there, amazing grace, We sang a version of that song last Sunday. And I just wonder that if we hear that word so often in church, has it it lost its power? Has it lost that eye-turning-on, gut-wrenching, changing reality that God's grace is actually amazing? It's extreme. It'll make you love people you don't want to love. It'll make you let people come to church you didn't think should be in church and you're not sure that they should come back next week because you know what they did between here and here? That extreme grace, that grace that says me as this finite creature cannot possibly understand this infinite God that gives grace to people that I don't quite understand why he keeps giving them grace. But he said, I love you no matter what. And I feel like sometimes we get hung up on the fact that when Christ healed people, he then said, go and sin no more, right? Maybe that's where we get hung up on this pure gospel and this altered gospel of, well, he did tell them to go sin no more. We're going to spend some time here in a little bit in Mark chapter 1. And he looked at the leper after he healed the leper, and he said, now go and don't tell anybody, go fulfill the law that you've been given through Moses and go present yourself to the priest and do the things you need to do, but don't say anything to anyone. What did that guy do? He went and told everybody. You think God got angry at him for doing that? No, he already knew because let me tell you something, when God touches your life in a supernatural way, you can't keep it to yourself. It wouldn't even matter if he had told him; He'd have walked in the room. I mean, lepers, it's pretty obvious on their bodies that they are lepers. Because they're missing fingers. And they're not John. They're missing fingers for completely different reasons. <laughs> They've got noses missing. Like, it was very obvious that you were a leper. So even if he had said nothing, his life revealed the fact that he had been touched by something greater than he Church, that's what we are supposed to be like as Christians. We're supposed to walk into a room and this light that fills the inside of us oh, c- c- takes over the darkness. If I turn the lights off, it's dark in here, right? But if I turn the light on, what is more powerful, the light or the dark? Light, right? And yet we are so concerned about these dark things in people's life, that if somehow they get near me, it's going to rub off on me. It's not going to rub off on you. You're the light, not the dark. Amen? And so go and sin no more, and I get hung up there because, well, they went and did something again. Dare I say that we may have to redefine the word Sin. So, in um, early childhood, I have the privilege of having teachers come in my office on a regular basis, and they want to talk to me about the behaviors of either a six month old, a two year old, a four year old. And, and when I say that, I'm not just talking about the behaviors you might be thinking in your head, like they're throwing temper tantrums, or they're hitting, or they're kicking, or they're biting, or they're this or they're that. But I may be t- t- talking to a teacher who has a six month old who's just not eating real well. Or we can't get them to eat solid foods, or we can't get them to um, crawl, because if you crawl, then you're crossing this line. And your body and it helps you develop skills later on where you can write from here to here. And so there's all these things that we're trying to do in a classroom to make sure kids are um, physically moving the way they're supposed to be moving and they're learning the things they're supposed to be learning. And so I spend all this time and typically when a teacher comes into my room or into my office to have this conversation, they are fed up with whatever it is. Okay, they have exhausted all measures because it's affecting them on a daily basis. Sometimes I think when we're so close to something, we get so myopic to what we're dealing with that it's really hard to pull back and see much other than just the behaviors that we're dealing with. I can imagine no parent in this room struggles what I struggle with and ever has a hard time with this. Okay, so I'll go to the next parenting class. Y'all are good. So anyways, so I, I always sit there and I start asking, and you can ask anybody that works with me, their favorite thing about me. Their absolute favorite thing is the amount of questions I'm going to ask. They just can't wait for me to sit in front of them and go, okay. Because what I'm trying to do is not solve the problem of the symptom, but find why that thing is happening. So biting. Biting's a developmentally appropriate thing when you are 12 to 18 months old because as babies we put everything in our mouths because that's how we experience life and this isn't an early childhood lesson but you're going to catch some of it as we go, right? And so... I'm always talking, and there's seven reasons why a kid will bite, and sometimes it has to do with their teething, or they haven't moved out of a developmental stage, or it might have to do with the atmosphere of the classroom, or internal feelings, because 12 months old don't know how to regulate their emotions. Again, as adults, we've learned that lesson. We know how to regulate our emotions, identify them, and cope with them really well. And so... This isn't an adult issue. It's just a kid issue that throws temper tantrums on the floor and flails around and can't handle what's happening on the inside of them. And so we're trying to teach them so that they would become like you and know exactly how to handle all of their emotions and the things that are happening and process those things. And so that's what's happening. So normally I'm asking all of these questions, and I rarely give them an answer, which makes them so thrilled with me, let me tell you. I always end the conversation after 30,000 questions with a notebook, and I say, go back, and the next time that child tries to bite, or even attempts to bite, I want you to write down for me everything that's happening in the classroom. What time of day it is, who else is involved, what was the situation happening? Because without fail, if I ask them, well, why did they bite? There was no good reason. There's never a good reason. For whatever the behavior is, that is always gonna be the answer I get. I always ask, but that's always the answer I'm gonna get. And it's shocking because if the teacher will spend the time You see, my job with teachers is to teach them not to try and correct a child, but to connect with a child. There's something that happens within a child when you connect with them and you stop trying to correct them. Because, see, if you can connect with another individual, it allows you to communicate to them. Not based on the things you can see with your eyes, but it allows you to see deeper into the reality of who they are. What does mom act like when she drops off? Does mama look stressed? What's the tension in mom's eyes when she drops that child off? I don't care if you get 2.5 seconds with that mom, you can tell if she's stressed or not. What's the status of that baby? Is they Are they crying? Are they having a hard time leaving mom? Are they sleeping at night? Are they eating right? because see, normally the behaviors in our lives have very little to do with these systematic things, these, these issues that we can see in a real physical way, but normally it's a little deeper. I wanna take you to uh, Romans chapter 8, verse three. It says, for what the law could not do, that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. The Amplified says he subdued it and overcame it in person. Aren't you glad God shows up in person? He doesn't send a messenger. He shows up in person and it says he subdued it and overcame it. Every issue you're struggling with in your life, I just want to give you some freedom to let you know that God's already overcome it. He's already subdued it. He already put it down under the grave that you don't actually have to deal with these things anymore. The problem is we've got a group of believers that still want to deal with whether or not you're smoking, drinking, and running with the people that do. Instead, they're not trying to go, what is the deeper issue that causes you to... Amen? Amen? Why are they struggling with these things? But see, if God can get, or if the enemy can get you so focused on the insignificant things, you will miss the significant things. Right? So let's not, church, worry about correcting people. Let's just find a way to connect with them. Talk to them, hear them find out maybe there might be something happening on a deeper level. The message version says it this way, the law always ended up being used as a band-aid on sin instead of a deeper healing of it. Oh, so sin now is not my behavior. Sin now is not the product of a deeper issue. What could sin be? What then did Eve struggle with in the garden? Did she struggle with a behavior she so we got we're, we're all in this whole issue because she ate a bite of an apple. All of humanity has struggled because she ate an apple. I don't think it had anything to do with the apple. I don't think it has anything to do with the behaviors that came from it. Was it this idea that she was lied that there was something missing on the inside of her that she had to go get. Was there this idea that she was lied to, that she didn't have all that God had already given and destined for her down deep in the inside of her, but somewhere, someone put this lie in her head that I'm missing something and I've got to go get something to make myself whole because I'm not whole, and so I can do this on my own. Sounds like a two-year-old temper tantrum to me. I can do this on my own. I can fix it. Henley's telling me all the time he thinks he can button his own pants. Let me tell you what the child cannot do button his own pants. But it is a 20 minute ordeal every morning of him trying to button his own pants. And listen, I just want to button his pants so we can go. I got to rearrange my whole morning so I make room for 20 minutes for this kid to try to button his pants only to look at me and say. So we've got this little little guy that's started walking, and Hoxton um, is my last baby. (sighs) there's listen it really is there's a lot of really good reasons why unless god shows up and i become that's not happening so anyways it would be a miracle if that happens oh lord jesus have mercy on us i didn't say that that's okay so I have spent a lot of time trying to um, like soak up every minute of this, because it's the last baby I'm going to teach to walk, and it's the last baby that I'm going to watch mirror me for the first time. It's the last, so it's sort of all these last that I really enjoyed with all of them, and I really enjoyed with Hampton, but I think I might have taken for granted a little bit with Hezekiah and Henley, because I knew I was going to have another kid, and so this, I just, all of it, I just want to enjoy all of it. The good, the bad, the ugly, I just want to soak up all of it, because I've only been a parent for nine years, but I feel like I forgot what I did nine years ago, to be quite frank with you, and I can't even remember the first time Hampton took steps, because that should be something written down in a memory book, but this mom is an okay mom, not a real great mom, and so it didn't get written down. So anyways, um, and it probably, there's no picture, because I couldn't find my phone. So anyways, so I'm sort of doing this, and I've been trying to really understand sort of what he's going through, and um, so at six months old, or up until the point of your six to seven months old, do you know that infants do not know they are actually a separate being than their mamas? They don't actually know that. They don't know these hands that are flailing around in front of them. If you watch them, Sean's favorite thing with infants was when they went like this, because they had no idea that they have this separate entity body separate from their mamas. That's why we swaddle babies, because it makes them feel like they're in the womb. Or if you see a mom wearing a baby, she's not a tree hugger. She's trying to make that baby feel like she's, that baby's still in the womb, because babies have no concept. And it actually creates in them this sense of separation anxiety, So when a baby's screaming because they're leaving their mom, that's not bad parenting. That child does not understand why I'm being taken from, because the mama's heartbeat will regulate that baby. If they can feel that heartbeat, it'll calm a baby down. Ever wonder if we were never created to be separated from our creator? If it creates separation anxiety that then we have all these developmental milestones for kids to hit so that they can be individuals and find their own identity and learn how to self-regulate all by themselves in a corner somewhere. Is that how that was supposed to be? Was I created to be stuck in a corner somewhere and learn how to self-regulate myself? Or was I created to be in harmony with the God that created me? That out of his breast, up against his heartbeat, it would regulate everything on the inside of me. And that my calmness would come from the inside out because of the Father that I was... Hmm. But I don't know that I have time to spin in prayer i don't know that i have times i was looking up statistics on churches or on uh, christians and you know 73% of americans uh, would identify with being a christian in the united states today but 38% go to church 12% read their bible where do I get close to the bosom of God where I can feel his heartbeat? And I'm not just praying before him this list of things I need him to do in my life. You see, God didn't come to take care of your issues. When God looked at the leopard and he said, go and tell no one, he wasn't saying that because he wanted to be mean to the leopard. He knew in the moment that the leopard started telling people that he had not come really to solve their if- Uh, finite issues. He had come to save them. He had come to be their substitute, take their place. It was so much more than whether or not their individual issues got resolved. But church, we come to church every week, week after week with this individualistic mindset of the things I need to get from God instead of going, what is this community of believers stand in unison together in one voice and with one heart and say, God, let your words be my words. Break my heart, Father, for what breaks yours. Father, let me not be so consumed by the distractions of my fingers falling off and my nose falling off, but Father, let me know what you want me to do, that regardless of the situation in my life, God is still good, God is still great. It's not hard to get people to think God is great. It's hard for people to understand that God is good and that he is willing to do something in their lives This unashamed, life-giving, soul-healing, mind-altering, addiction-eliminating, pure gospel. When I was thinking about what that looked like a couple of weeks ago, it was a Saturday night, and I hadn't come to church that night, and the boys were playing, and it was one of those warm summer days, which I know has changed this week. (sighs) mother nature and her bipolarness is uh, we're gonna have some issues so partially because I just need my kids to go outside and play it's really just gives me sanity so figure it out and stay warm because my kids need to play outside so anyways it was one of those days where the boys had just played out all day they had been outside all day and they just were loving every minute of it and the spring rain came I know us in Kansas, we understand what spring rain is. Most people have no idea, but the spring rain where the sky isn't scary, you're not even worried, you're not even turning the news on because it it doesn't look terrifying, and the smell of it. I was standing out, so we don't, in fact, we were at Stephen's house last night, and Stephen and Joe live in a neighborhood, and I'm not judging you if you live in a neighborhood, but I don't know how you handle it, Um, because there are so many houses and people and It's loud. And anyway, so we live out and we have a little bit of space. And so I just was looking up over and that spring rain does that thing in the clouds where there aren't a lot of clouds. So it's sort of confusing where said rain is coming from. Or at least I am because I don't understand science. But anyways, so don't come up afterwards and tell me I don't care. This was the moment I was having. Okay, I was having a Jesus moment. Let me have it. Okay, so the sky is super gorgeous, and it looks like a watercolored painted picture with all the blues and purples and golds and yellows, and this rain starts to fall. And it's like the, the colors of nature come more to life. And I know this is going to sound crazy. Again, I have my own spiritual woo-woo moment. You just leave me alone. It was like the grass. Sean works really hard on our grass. He's really proud of our green grass. But it's like every blade of grass was standing to attention to just receive this life-giving, beautiful, lovely rain. And my kids were just standing out on it, and I can think of Hezekiah, because Hezekiah, if you want to know how to just enjoy life, meet Hezekiah Thomas Faulkner, because that boy is going to love life. He don't know what a rule is to save his life. He doesn't understand. He'll laugh You'll be real serious. It's super frustrating to parents because you're being real serious and the kid is just laughing his little head off. But he always has a smile. He's always joyful. And he was out in that rain with his arms open and with his head back and he was just spinning. And I thought, to me, that's what the true gospel is. It allows you to abandon yourself in it and just say, oh, this is life-giving. This is nurturing my soul. I think this is what God said to the Samaritan woman when he said, this water will come out of you and it'll be a spring forth and you will thirst no more. And it was like all of creation knew in that moment when that spring rain hit that that's what was happening. I don't see that look in church every week. Sometimes we look sad, sometimes we look really mad. Where is that true, authentic word of God that came to set the captive free, to heal the sick, to deliver those that are in bondage, that step out and say, holy smokes, just pour that over me. That healing anointing oil. Taste and see that the Lord is good they're supposed to church be able to taste that when they come in contact with us do they walk away with a sour taste do you walk away with a sour taste I think sometimes it has to do with how we view God which is why I know my dad's working hard for you to understand and view God in the true authentic way because only in understanding who God is can we understand who we are. And then when we understand who we are, oh, now I can live in this amazing grace. You see, the grace is free to everyone, but most of us don't actually feel free. And it's not because of our sin. It's because of our shame. Shame is the judgment we have on ourselves. Shame is that voice in our head that says, I hear you, but there's no way he could actually love me if he saw me. There's no way this God actually forgived me for that you don't know what I did back here. He couldn't possibly. Shame will keep you from experience all that God has for you in your life. The Bible says he took on our sin and our shame. All those things he made perfect in that moment. We have to get this church in our minds because the Bible says that it's in the transforming. How does transformation happen? By the renewing of our minds. And our minds, we think, right? We process. We try to make sense of the things happening around us and happening to us And typically, that narrative happens based on our past experiences and our traumas and our hurts, and and so it's hard sometimes to think about things how they might truly be because they're so um, paradoxically shifted based on what's happened around us and to us. You see, when I think about the fall of man, I think very little about these behaviors that have happened and that really end up hurting people. I'm not saying you, you should just go and do all of those things. I realize there are behaviors that will hurt you long term. If you do drugs long term, your body can't handle it, you will die. That's, that's just the law of nature. It is not good for you to do those things, right? We all know what those things are because we as parents teach our kids, you can't do this because long term, this will be very detrimental in your life. So I'm trying to teach my kids the things that they should and shouldn't. Because, But it's deeper than just those external, if all I deal with are the behaviors and I don't get to the root issue, then I can't really make an effect. It doesn't really create a change because the change happens when I think about it. And when I think about it, it determines how I feel about it. So up here in this thing, I think and I try to figure out what I'm trying to make sense of, which then creates these feelings that I have about the things that I'm thinking about that then will determine my desires, the things that I think are possible. It'll affect my hope. So church, it matters how we think about God because how we think about God will determine our hope in God. It is all connected. God didn't create this unbelievable physical body that works in a way that is so mind-blowing to me and it not connect together. How we think about God makes a difference. I was reading and I found a quote from a gentleman by the name of John Milton who does a lot of research with minds and he said, the mind in its own place and in itself can make a hell of heaven And a heaven of hell. You see, I don't know, church, that there are too many people scared to death about going to hell. They're already living in hell. They've experienced hell on earth, and the fiery pit actually sounds like a vacation compared to what they're dealing with. And the church as a whole is too busy dealing with their symptoms of sin and not the real reality is that they were never created to live separated from the God that created them. And if we could find a way to breathe that truth back into the lives of people, that maybe then transformation will begin and over a lifetime you will see all of these other things begin to fade away. For the love of God, I hope my nine-year-old doesn't throw himself down on the floor and throw a temper tantrum like he did when he was two. Hampton was the most angry two-year-old. I can remember just sitting down on the floor and crying because I thought, oh, God, it's only been two years and I've already ruined him. (laughs) Why am I the parent? I can't do this. I'd look around and Avery specifically because there's this problem we have where we start comparing ourselves. And I would compare Hampton to Avery and Avery would just sit and play quietly and Hampton was, and she never melted down and she was always. And even in families, see that's part of the narrative we start happening. My dad sometimes would look at me and go, why doesn't Hampton act like her? (laughs) He's so loud. (laughs) And I I would go home and just be in tears because I could, I had no idea. In fact, it got so bad, I would not go in public with Hampton by myself. I would go to Walmart, and we get to the back end of the store because they always know when you get to the back end of the store, mm -hmm, that's where they're gonna throw the loudest, most obnoxious fit, you got a full basket. They don't do it when you pick up the first two things on the front end of the store, they do it when the basket's full and you're in the back end of the thing and everybody can hear him the whole way out. And he was, my kids are massive, they just are massive. And so at two, you know, how many of you picked up a screaming two year old and they're kicking and they're flailing and you gotta carry them out of the store and you're trying to keep it composed, right? Because you don't want no one to call DCF on you And so I'm just like, oh, God, just get me out of here. And with luck, I had my daycare T-shirt on to really make it even better. Like, this is a really great show for the daycare right now. Send them to that crazy lady. And so I I remember the time it happened for the last time I was at Dollar General because I thought, well, it's a small store. So parents figure this out. Mamas figure out, okay, so I can run in, I can get it. And somehow as I'm loading the stuff in the car, like the 2.3 seconds, I don't have him strapped in because I strapped my kids in that basket. Not because it was safe so they couldn't crawl out. I I was not worried about safety. I was worried about my sanity. And so I had gotten him out of the car and set him right beside me. And I went to do something and then I was gonna put him in. But um, if you have a really, really smart kid, like in less than three seconds, they can figure out a way that they got freedom and they run in for the hills. And Hampton is running the vehicle in the parking lot at Dollar General. And um, you know, there's cars coming in and they're not paying attention because they're not expecting a two-year-old child. They're expecting a parent to have her nonsense together and put this kid in and I'm pregnant with Hezekiah and I'm just like, oh, he's gonna die. It's gonna be my fault. Like I'm having, I mean, ugly crying in the middle of, it was a Wednesday night. I call Sean, I'm like, we're gonna have to give this baby away cause I can't even take care of this baby. Cause I don't know about you, but I go to deathcom 5 when I'm losing my mind. So this child, we got to find a family that can do it better than us. And we'll just give this child away cause I suck as a mom. I know, I, I, I'm just telling, I'm being honest with you on my issues. And none of you have these issues or ever had these thoughts. Right? (laughs) Someone asked me the other day, they walked in and they were like, Hampton is just, and now when I go see, um, like, Hampton's teacher, they tell me how calm he is, how he can regulate his emotions. He helps the other kids. He'll step in between arguments and help the kids. In fact, he got punched on Friday at school because two kids were fighting and he stepped in the middle of it to help calm them down. And he's telling them to take big, deep breaths. And that's because his mama was trained on conscious discipline. So at 18 months, I'm like, Hampton, we're gonna take big, deep breaths. And my kid would sit here and go, "Ah, ah, ah." and I was like, are you even possessed? Maybe someone should come over and anoint you with oil or dunk you in a baptismal. Something's wrong with him. But today, he'll just remove himself from the situation and he'll take these big deep breaths. Now, I just want to tell you, Hezekiah does none of this. None of it, none of it, none of it. He doesn't even, he is so oblivious to anything happening around him, but Hampton will take these big deep breaths. And so someone asked me, they said, man, he's just, you've just got this parenting thing in the bag. And Alex said, oh no, it's a complete science experiment. I'll let you know in 30 years if any of it actually works. I don't actually know what I'm doing. This is working right now, but I'm not. You see, if you spend time connecting with a person, over time, it doesn't happen overnight. I remember when I had a trainer here. Her name was Jenny Ricker. I'm still good friends with her, and she's giving me conscious discipline. I thought it was a load of... I was like, "A breathing is going to solve my problem with this two-year-old. <laughs> okay, I'll try it. How many has anyone ever walked into your life and given you a solution? You've gone, yeah, there's no way it's that easy. And it's not that easy. Oh, you mean I could fix my finances by not just spending money? No, there's no way it's that easy. No, 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 no. I'll go find somebody else with a different answer. Because there's no way it's actually... But it's because we want immediate gratification. We want it to change overnight. And the reality of it is, is this transformational process. My dad said it. I think I caught it at the Seder meal. He said that cross was not a place that most people look at as a transaction. It was a transformation. and Every one of us are being transformed into this creation that we were originally created to be, but it is a work in progress. It's gonna take me most of my lifetime to get to this place that God says I truly am. So I wanna take you to Mark chapter one. I just wanna fill you in, that was um, the introduction. So we're gonna find a way to speed this up and cut some notes down. Now a leper came to him, employing him, kneeling down to him and saying to him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand, and touched him and said, I am willing, be cleansed. As soon as he spoke that, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And he strictly warned him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. However, he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city, but was outside in deserted places. And they came to him from every direction. I want to quickly try and paint a picture of the leper and how we might view ourselves in this story. You see, to really understand leprosy, you have to go back to the book of Leviticus when the law started being written. You don't want to go to the book of Leviticus if you're looking for a really encouraging, motivational devotional word, because it reads way more like a dietary regulation and a dermatology book. And so they take two chapters, in chapter 13 and chapter 14, to specifically talk about leprosy. And what I want to just vaguely throw out there is that the law was put in place. Most people want to keep quoting the law, and again, we'll go back to Romans 8, where Christ came and fulfilled the law. See, the law reveals to me my need for Jesus, The law is not what I'm under but it does reveal to me this idea that I need a savior because I cannot do this on my own. But the beauty of the true gospel is that when you really look at it and we get this picture and I remember trying to teach uh, the Old Testament to children back in children's church. Listen, I don't know why you're worried about anything they watch. If you teach them very many stories out of the Old Testament, it's terrifying. And kids have a way of going, wait a second. Because, you know, Noah's Ark looks real cute on a flannel board with all the little animals. That looks real adorable until a three-year-old looks at you and goes, he killed everybody? Can we kill everybody? <laughs> I'm like, uh, hold on a second. We leave Sodom and Gomorrah out. That's just not even happening in the grade school classrooms. But it is hard when you read the Old Testament through the lens, you start to see this mean, angry God, right? And when you read the book of Leviticus and it gives you all these rules and stipulations on how you can approach God, that was because we were a defiled, unholy people trying to come into and commune with. See, God was always looking for a way to reunite the creator with creation. And this was the only way he had in the book of Leviticus, was he passed down this law to say, this is how we will meet together together that you will sacrifice a lamb. But what we know is when we get to Jesus, that was completely fulfilled in Jesus's sacrifice. So now my entry to him, my um, acceptance from him to me is completely different. I don't have to jump through the five hoops, wear a certain clothing, do this, do that. I just am because it's unmerited, undeserved, unearned grace that I enter, amen? And so this leper, you have to understand, leprosy wasn't like every other disease. Leprosy was differentiated because they said they thought it was an issue of the soul. It was the defilement of the soul. And so they wanted you to be identified in certain ways. So you had to wear certain clothing. You couldn't keep your hair. You had to cover your face so far. There were all these stipulations. You could only come within, you could come, but you had to be 50 steps away from, the, from another person because it was a contagious. And they did not want to defile, right? So the unclean could make the clean unclean. What the Pharisees and the religious people of the time did not realize is when the unclean come in contact with the perfect, holy, clean Christ, it will not make him unclean. He changes everything. You see church, we're too worried about sin or this idea of sin, how we've defined it as behaviors being contagious. But I want to tell you today that grace is more contagious than sin. Grace is more contagious than shame. You don't have to worry about being around people that aren't living perfect, because I want to tell you, your light will illuminate in the darkness. If that's happening on the inside of you, you don't have to worry about their sin jumping on you. You don't have to worry about that that somehow they're going to change you. Now, I'm not saying if you've got a specific issue and you don't want to go put yourself in a certain position because maybe you have a tendency to be more weak in that area, find someone to disciple you and they'll help you work through that. But, for all intents and purposes, sin's not contagious. Grace is. We don't have to be worried that their uncleanliness is going to jump on us. We are are the agents of God. All that He has is in you. And when you step into those places, it said that our feet, every place we'd step would become holy ground. Everything we would touch would become blessed, that it would be prosperous, that we would be the head and not the tail above and not below, blessed going in and blessed going out, that I don't have to worry about the things of this world because I am more than a conqueror, that I have everything I need through Christ Jesus, that all things are possible through Christ who made it possible in me. And Christ looked at us and he said, you will do far greater than I have done on this earth. Church, that's our identity that we can step into the life of a leopard and not be concerned that what they're struggling with, I'm going to struggle with because I know that it's not by what I do, but it's the God within me. I don't know where it is in my notes, but I I don't have time to deal with it. So I I watched my dad do this at the, um, I've watched him do, so part of, I don't know, maybe being in church so long and being a PK kid, my dad's done things so long that they almost become, do you ever get numb to them? You think we've ever church? You know the first sign of leprosy is they have no feeling. They're numb. Their fingers will fall off, and they don't even know it. I think that's plaguing the church. I think the two things that are plaguing the church today are shame, their judgment of themselves, that there's no possible way this great God could actually love me to that extent. And so we hide ourselves and we cover ourselves, we come into church, but we don't even experience healing because we're hiding behind something. We're allowed to come to church like the lepers are, but we stay 50 paces away from God because I don't know what'll happen if I get too close. But you say this leopard was not afraid. He said, you know what? They could kill me. They could take me out and stone me. But at the end of the day, I would rather be in connection with God. I would rather just maybe try and get closer to him that if he could possibly deal with this nonsense that I have been carrying in my life, that maybe it would change. But that means I have to get in contact with someone. I have to connect with them. That's the only way true intimacy happens, where real transformation happens. It doesn't just come when you come to church one hour a week. It comes when you get plugged into a discipleship group, when you're empowered with somebody else that pours into your life and you can learn from them. But that means, people, we have to get beat out from behind the things that we've allowed the world to clothe us with. Too many of us, they said in those days, the lepers had to be behind, who has a phone? I I I didn't bring my phone in. We're going to pretend like this Bible is a phone. And they had to stand behind a screen. In this culture, we get behind screens to cover our dysfunctions, to cover the things that we don't want people to actually see. So we stand behind screens and we put out into the world who we think people want us to be, who we think people will approve us for. We start performing and we start doing monkey tricks because we think if we act this way, even in church, if I raise my hands, if I shout loud enough, they'll think I've got this under control. Let me tell you, that mama standing in Dollar General, there was no lie. Everybody knew I was out of control. The two-year-old was in complete control of the situation. We are so scared by the limitations of what other people might think of me that they might think I'm out of control. But Daniel threw off everything he had, all the robes of a king, and he danced undignified in front of God. You see, when the, the snake came into the garden, Adam and Eve's first choice was to cover themselves up. They had never known before that they were standing naked before their creator. And all of a sudden, the lie they believed about themselves made them try shame. They started covering themselves up and God made a way with the skin and he put clothes on him and thus the reason for the sacrifices. But let me dare tell you, I watched my dad do this at at the Seder meal. And Hebrew people would understand they did this. And if you remember, they talked to the Pharisees because these represented their prayers. And they would wear them. And even the Pharisees would use whatever clothes they had to cover up the actual heart issue in their lives. Christ talked about it multiple times. But in the New Testament, I think it's in 2 Corinthians. If you want me to, I'll find it later. It's in my notes. I have it in my notes. It says that Christ came and he clothed us. He put on us his righteousness. He bore our sin and shame that we might be covered with the righteousness of God. Church, you are covered with the righteousness of God. Real Hebrew people understand that my faith isn't just an aspect of my life. It is to cover my life.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's message from the Father's house. We hope you stay connected by following us online at FathersHouse.net. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by using TFHHutch.